Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4. Okay, last time we looked at Jesus' inauguration uh, by really John the Baptist as well as the Holy Spirit alighting on him and the Father saying he's well pleased. And today we're going to look at the devil's temptation of Jesus and also the start of Jesus' public ministry. Starting with verse 1. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So, Chapter 3, Jesus' inauguration. Chapter 4, his temptation. But why was he led up by the Spirit to be tempted? What's that all about? Well, oftentimes in Scripture, we see that Jesus shows us the way. He leads by example. And he showed us that we have the power to resist temptation and to walk in the Spirit. Now, some of you may come in, have come in today struggling with a particular issue struggling with something that just, that temptation. Satan is a, he's the master psychologist. You know, him and his guys, they'll follow you around and they'll take notes. I mean, he's been doing this for thousands of years. He's the greatest war general. And what he does is he finds your weaknesses and he tries to exploit them. You understand? That's what he does. And uh, with Jesus, probably in his mind, he probably figured, and he's so deluded, that he thought, if any time I was going to get Jesus or topple the whole Father, Son, Holy Spirit, it would be now when Jesus took the form of a man. Of course, we know that he wasn't successful. But I just want to say this. That power is available to you. That power is available to every one of you today who are struggling with something going on. You might have been in church all your life, and you say, well, gee, people look at me as a mature Christian. I can't even share this. So I'm just trying to encourage you today. Hopefully by the end of this message, you can take heart and just put a little bit more spring in your step knowing that you have that power over temptation and sin. He fasted 40 days and was hungry. Now there are competing interests here. Number one, fasting. He's attenuating the flesh. He's subduing it. And he's accentuating the spirit. He's bringing it up. He's denying one and giving prominence to the other because you know that we can't walk in the flesh and walk in the Spirit at the same time. We either have to be doing one or the other. They can't coexist. And certainly the more Jesus went without food, the more his body proper, his physical being, demanded that food. You know, as we sit here today, <clears throat> if you're, you may be using your eyes to watch what's going on. You know, your heart is beating. You, you have a blood pressure that's being maintained. Your hypothalamus is regulating your body temperature. Uh, you're breathing. All these things are happening without you telling your body to do it or not to do it. I mean, if I wanted to say right now, stop eating, stop breathing, it's not going to work because the body's just going to do it. It kind of has a mind of its own in a sense. So Jesus' physical body desired that bread. So it made this temptation all the more difficult. If anyone was put behind the eight ball, so to speak, right now at this point, it was Jesus. All odds were against him, but he still defied that temptation. Hebrews 4.15 is an interesting verse. It says that Jesus, it says, We do not have a high priest, who is Jesus, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Now, I'm going to take that word, I believe it's pirasmos, and it has a dual meaning. It could mean tempted, but it could also mean tested. And understand both of them, at times there's, there's a lot of crossover. 
So we're going to talk about context here. He was tempted, but he was also tested. And of course, he passed those tests. So what's the big deal? What if Jesus just went, stone's bread, there you go, I'm hungry, I'm satisfied. Would that be a sin? I, I Probably not. However, Jesus never used his power to satisfy himself. He never used his power for his own gain, if you look at the scripture. You know, they said to him, you save so many, why don't you save yourself? Because that wasn't his mission. His mission was to save us, right? However, look at the argument here, you know, and look at the, the idea behind the argument. Why, Jesus? Why don't you just turn those stones into bread? It's not a big deal. No one will know. Just between me and you. You can satisfy yourself, and it's a good thing, because now you can continue your ministry that the Father gave you now strengthened. You see the reasonableness there. And we have to be careful, brothers and sisters, because sometimes we are tempted with that worldly reasonableness to go outside the Father's will to do it our own way. And, of course, Jesus rejected that. He had to show us that we had the ability to have power over the flesh. Now, Jesus answered temptation with Scripture. It is written. And I believe he said it very powerfully. Make no mistake, it is written. And then he continues. We can do the same thing. 1 Corinthians 10 tells me that even when I sin, that if I look back, I can see that God provided a way out that I could escape that sin, I could avoid it. I could be in the Spirit, but I didn't take the escape route. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that. He always makes a way for us to get out of that sin. So when we sin, we can't blame him. It was too overcoming. Mm -mm, Not according to Scripture. And the only way to survive this temptation is to have the right weapons. The sword of the Spirit, the offensive weapon, right? The sword of the Lord, the Word of God that cuts through anything, uh, physically and spiritually. However, Jesus in his response quoted the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 8.3, and he says this, all the way back in the Old Testament, under the command to remember the Lord, it says, so he, God, humbled you, speaking to the children of Israel, allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna. Remember, in the Hebrew, that word meant, what is it? They don't even know what it was. It was like these flakes that came down from heaven. They would, they would gather it up, and they would eat it. It would sustain them. It had nutritional value. But it was very mysterious. There was no manna tree. It had to come directly from God. So he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Now, we start to see a subtle change here in how God looks at bread. Manna, we understood that as the bread from heaven. But he, he shows us how, and again, in that society, bread was your thing. I mean, today you can go to the supermarket, you could get grains, you can get bread, you could get exotic fruits. There's all kinds of stuff coming into our supermarkets. Back then, bread was your main staple. So you understood sustenance, staying alive, hungry, bread. So understand how important that was in that culture. John 6, I'm going to turn to the New Testament. John 6.30, just a few verses. They said to Jesus, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, now watch this, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. We're going off of one track and heading to another. 
For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. John 4, one more, starting in verse 31. Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well in Samaria. His disciples are out. They come back. John 4, 31. Or starting with 30. Then they went out of the city and came to him, meaning Jesus. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. They knew he hadn't eaten in a while. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. I love the fact that they, the disciples reason among themselves. They're like, what? They look at each other. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? You know? And Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for the harvest. So we think of bread, but the Bible says that the spiritual is more important than the physical. We see a priority change. Don't just be looking at a physical sustenance. Now, the first temptation was really a challenge at God's provision. Oh, and brothers and sisters, don't tell me that we haven't all been there at one point or another. When we're in trouble or we're struggling and we say, Lord, you know, what's going on? And we, and we take that tone with him. It's, it's a challenge to his provision. Right? Maybe he provides for everyone else, but not me in this particular situation. And how do we turn this? You know, we can take our fleshly needs and desires and elevate them above the spiritual. There really is a difference between a need list and a want list. We could say, I need a new car, or I need an addition on my house, or I need a new coat. <laughs> but that could be really in the want list. Now, what is food for? For a few things, you can consume food for exercising, for energy, uh, for enjoyment, for even storage. And I've, I tell you what, I've eaten pies all week, and I'm pretty good on the storage department right now, you know? <laughs> but we can look at other fleshly pursuits, some good, some bad. Some within God's confines are good, and some are not so good, you know? And on a really hot day, if it's, my flesh wants to jump in a pool and cool off, there's a fleshly desire. I don't know so much that it's a need, but we can look at those things. And here's the question, are we concerned about proper nutrition for the body? Most of us are, right? You know, most of us are. But are we as concerned about proper nutrition for the spirit, the spiritual diet? Or in some cases, are we spiritually starving? Or are we surviving on spiritual junk food? How come we, even as born-again believers, we take care of our bodies, we pamper ourselves. But are we taking care of our spirit? Are we feeding our spirit? Because if we don't get the first one right, where do we go into the next temptation? Satan's going to cream us because now he's going to use Scripture. Very adaptable, very crafty. Verse 5. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, and he quotes Psalm 91, He shall give his angels charge concerning you, and in their hands... They shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now here's the thing about Psalm 91. He, Satan conveniently took a verse, two verses, and he cut and pasted. You know, he got on his little word program and he took out a certain part that says, to keep you in all your ways. So he made it sound like something that it really wasn't saying. 
He, he twists scripture. Now, in context, Psalm 91 says that God is, is there. He, he protects us. He's, he's there for us in all our ways. And for those who make their habitation in him, these are the things that we can expect. It also says in that scripture that he covers us under the feathers of his wings. Now, we don't think that God has wings and he has feathers, do we? There's symbolism there. So Satan takes that and he really twists it out of context. Now, these are the most successful cultish teachings will do this. I mean, you can get somebody knocking on your door on a Saturday morning and they don't believe the deity of Christ. They don't believe, have weird ideas about the Holy Spirit. Uh, Some of their ideas are really warped and you say, gee, that's not really Christian. That doesn't reflect the Bible. That's obvious. The dangerous ones are the ones, and I've even said this before, you know, some cultish teachings will use 99% of the truth and put 1% of a lie. Now, here it gets even worse. They use all of the truth, but take it out of context. Those are the most dangerous. And if you're not on your guard, it can confuse you and take you aback. A good idea, a good method is if somebody tries to get you to believe a bizarre doctrine and they're quoting scripture, go back to that scripture Read it, read the paragraph before and the paragraph or the chapter before and the chapter after and get your context straight before you continue your discussions. Unless you know your Bible and you're walking in the Spirit, the devil will tie you up in knots. I've seen some who have left good, solid, Bible-believing churches, not just Calvaries, and follow cultish teachings. And I scratch my head and I say, how does that happen when you have the truth? Did they not apply themselves? Let's go back to the reasonableness method here. Again, the world's reasonable, uh, reasonableness, because Satan is of the world. After all, Jesus is the Messiah. Jump. If you look at the history books, it tells us that the highest part of the temple, and then you go down to the lowest part of the ravine, is some 500 feet. So it wasn't the, he wasn't jumping off like the stage here. If he was going to jump, he was going to hit hard, and he would be done unless there was a supernatural force that stopped him from hitting the ground. So we're talking about a huge drop. Jump, you're the Messiah, right? You, you know, we know what's going to happen anyway, but he wouldn't do it. Jesus answered and said, another, and again, I'm sure, listen, Jesus could have done anything he wanted to. He could have, just before he hit the ground, he could have stopped. He could have, whatever, had the angels pick him up, whatever the case may be. But he answers with another overriding scripture in Deuteronomy 6.16. Or again, go back into the law. It says, you shall not tempt or you shall not test more specifically the Lord. And this was the point of time, if you go back to Deuteronomy, where the children of Israel were in the wilderness and they were complaining again. You know, we're thirsty. Why have we been brought out here just to die? We should have gone back to Egypt. We should have stayed there. Except they forget that they were slaves in Egypt. You know, it's, the grass is always greener on the other side. So God, they're testing him, they're pushing him, they're testing his goodness, but he provides water for them so they don't die. Now, I'm a context guy uh, because I always want to give the context of the scripture and not make the scripture mean what I think it means. It has to mean what God says it means. It's important. So Christ knows the goodness of the Father, believes his promises, no need to test them, and we also know the goodness of God, and we don't need to test him. The only proper time to test God when he says, test me and prove me, The only time I see in Scripture is Malachi 3 when it comes to tithing. See, if you're generous and you tithe, that I won't open the storehouses of heaven for you. So there's there's a, a, a particular point. There's also other statements that he makes, as in Jeremiah 29, 13, conditional statements, if you seek me with your whole heart, God says, you will be found by me. And we, we rest on those promises. Uh, and that's open to anyone, anyone here today. There are some that will... Again, even today in Christianity, they will test God. 
You ever hear of church services where they have like a pit, a, a, a pit like a, <laughs> with, with snakes in it? And they do this, it's like a ceremony and they do snake, it's poisonous snakes, you know? And they say, if you have enough faith, you can go up and hold the snake and even if it bites you, you'll live. And some people have died, you know what I'm saying? Um, very sad, putting God to the test. God's not going to be pushed into a corner. Okay, God, I dare you to rescue me. You know, you put yourself in this bizarre situation, it doesn't work. He doesn't operate like that. He won't have it. The devil loves to operate in the extremes. You see, on the one end, you can look at this and say, oh, I'm a Christian, a Christian all my life, but I don't believe in miracles. Well, I don't know how you can divorce being a Christian from the fact that God does supernatural feats. On the other extreme, there are some that want to live their life by miracles. Unless their adrenaline is pumping or they get a tingling feeling, well, the Holy Spirit isn't in it. And of course, uh, Bizarre doctrine is always in the, in the extremes. I'll just give you a, a, an example about trusting God, even in, in a simple situation. I remember years ago, my son had, he was little, and his baby still in the car seat, and he had a, um, an ear infection. And we were praying all day, Lord, please. He'll, you know, I have a little otoscope, I look in his ears, and I'm getting pretty good at it. If you come to me, I won't charge you a co-payment. But... Uh, <laughs> You know, you can see the little, the, the borders of the ear, and if it's swelled, if it's red, or if it's grayish. But anyway, his was definitely red, and it was, it was uh, inflamed. So we've been praying and praying. His fever started going up higher and higher. Well, at some point, he was up to, like, high, like 104, and we were really concerned. So we throw him in the vehicle, and we, were, we live close to the hospital. So instead of calling the ambulance, we just went. And I strategically placed him in the car seat behind my wife so she couldn't see him. So as I'm driving, I'm looking over at him, and he's like kind of getting dopey. And then all of a sudden, at one point, his, he, his head goes back, and his eyes start bing, bing, bing up top. And I'm like, on the gas. And my wife is like, is everything okay? Oh, yeah, baby, he's just fine. You know, praying all the way to the hospital. Listen, if the fever dropped and his ear was fine, I would have turned around. But that wasn't God's will for that particular moment. Does that mean I didn't have enough faith? Right? I'm not going to test God and say, well, I'm just going to let him sit here and suffer because I know God's going to heal him. He may choose not to. I don't know one pastor or one man of God that if their loved one was suffering a trauma, that they wouldn't take him to the emergency room. It doesn't mean that the man doesn't have faith. So let's be careful with this whole testing thing. There's a situation, there's a, there's a way out, there's an issue, and we put God in a position uh, to test him. So the second temptation, here's the challenge. And this is what the, it strikes at the heart of this, this, this challenge is God's care and protection for us. Again, I believe everything that Psalm 91 states, I believe it for me and my family. Have I been sick? Yes. Have I gone to the hospital? Yes. But there's another law that's actually stronger, which says that when sin entered the world, death entered the world, and death through sin. If you look at God's laws, there are some laws that just take precedence. We know that even if God does a miracle, let's say somebody, you know, falls right down and they're dead, and, and we all pray, and, and they come back to life like Paul did. Right? He brought people back to life, or, or Jesus. They died again. Because the law that says when sin entered the world, death entered the world, and death through sin is up here. The only thing that can conquer that, that law is what? What's the, what's the law that's greater than that? The cross, right? The cross. Jesus came to destroy death and to destroy that curse. Well, we won't realize the full benefits of it until he comes back or he takes us home. So that's what's going on here. Here's a question for you. Did you ever wonder what God may have spared you from in your life? That's a real mind-bender, isn't it? Because 
how would I know? Because it didn't happen. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes in my prayer life, well, a lot of times I'll pray when I'm thankful in my prayers of thankfulness. I say, you know what, Lord, thank you for the things that you spared me from. So God has his hand of protection on me. I know people are praying for me. I pray, and uh, who knows, in the end, what God, what awful things that, that we were spared from in this life. So it's, it's all in how you look at things. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory and said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. The third challenge, we know Christ is going to come back and be the righteous ruler. Right? Satan says, hey, check all, all this stuff. You want it? It's yours. This is a challenge to God's timing, God's promises, and the, and the possibility or the idea that it seems that he's not coming through. This strikes at the heart of shortcutting God. God has a plan. God has timing. But do it now. It's going to happen anyway. You know these things are promised to you. Just take it. I'm just asking for something small in return for it. Little ancillary to that is maybe the love of the world. How many have, even as believers, have got caught up in the, in the mentality and they look around and see what everybody else has and they're caught up in the things of the world? How many believers, sadly, if Satan promised them that, I'll give you anything you want here. You just got to forsake the Lord. How many would, would, would be so tempted that they couldn't resist that? The world has a lot to offer, doesn't it? Right? But it's paltry compared to what God has to offer us. So the devil's attitude, it's, your, it's yours anyway. Everyone knows it. And think about this. The Son of God shouldn't have the sins of the world plastered on him. That is just awful. That, Jesus, that's not befitting for you. Don't go to the cross. Remember later on when Peter said to Jesus, you shall not go to the cross, Jesus said to him, away, get away from me, Satan, get behind me. You're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man. So to avoid the cross, boy, we would be in a lot of trouble right now, wouldn't we? Be no sense in us hanging out here. We should just drown our sorrows somewhere else because if Jesus didn't go to the cross, we'd all be in a lot of trouble. But basically, he's offering it to Jesus, and the, and the Greek tense of worship means that Jesus, all he had to do was worship Satan once, and he could have had all that and, and shortcut the cross. No way. Away from me, Satan. Now, for us, sometimes it's very difficult when we walk in the Spirit and we wait on God's timing and we question, Lord, Why? I don't understand this. I, I, it's, it, it's causing me to falter right now. I can't, I can't wrap my mind around this one, Lord. Why? And, and, and maybe a lot of us have been there. However, our society teaches us, get it, get it now, and don't wait. It's the entitlement mentality. You deserve it. The entitlement mentality has plunged this nation into debt. There's, there's not a whole lot of liquidity in our economy because of that idea. We all have to get it and get it now. Who cares what the ramifications are? Well, we'll worry about the bills when they come in. It's not good. Plunge the nation into debt. The third temptation is the belief that God won't deliver what he promised or what he gives us isn't good enough. That's another one. And believers fall, they struggle with that one. Well, how come they're not even believers? And how come they're so successful? And how come we're struggling? And, they're, you, know, and you start to compare. And they're not even believers. The Bible says it rains on the just and the unjust. What are the treasures waiting for us in heaven? Well, that, won't, that stuff won't even compare to that. 
Let me just give you a little lesson in God's timing. In 1 Samuel 7, and I'm giving it away when I teach it, but that's okay. It's a great portion of Scripture. In 1 Samuel 7, the children of Israel, they get humbled. I mean, the Philistines are just on them. And Samuel now, he comes to prominence as their judge. He's, he's their leader. They start to accept him. And he says to the children of Israel, listen, you guys got to repent, man. You know, this idolatry, this, these statues, all this stuff, it's no good. So he gets all the children of Israel together to repent. They come to Mizpah. They don't bring weapons and such. They're coming there to pray. Well, the Philistines see the movement of a large amount of the children of Israel. And they're thinking, you know, this probably would be a good time to attack. So the Philistines start moving in, and they start surrounding the children of Israel at Mizpah. Children of Israel are scared. Samuel, pray. What are we going to do? So Samuel uh, makes a sacrifice to the Lord. He's praying. And, you know, again, if I could take a little artistic liberties, if I was to make a movie, as the children of Israel, if they would look out, maybe with the, with the sunlight, these Philistines were so close that they could see the, the, their shields reflecting off the sun and their headgear and their javelins. And remember, uh, Goliath came from this clan. Some, some dudes are really big. And we got no weapons. We're just praying here. And it looks like all is lost. And the Philistines get so close, so close, that the only way to stop it is through divine intervention. And God thunders, and he causes this loud thundering, and it confuses the Philistines, and they're in a frenzy, and they start to panic and disperse. You want to talk about God's timing? How many, if that was us, would be tempted to beat feet and run? I don't know about you guys, but I'm going that way. You know, I see a clearing over the pass. I'm full speed ahead. All you're going to see is the soles of my sneakers. I don't know if they had sneakers back then, but... God's timing. And why is it that as believers, seriously, let, let's just level here. Why is it that we can look in the scripture and see these folks actually wait on God and at the last minute he comes through? But we today in 2010, you know, that's just not applicable to us. We've got to do it our way. You think that if God loves those people and allows them to go through that, that he wouldn't allow us to go through that? To see if we really, really trust him, if we really put our faith in him? It's going to happen to you and it's going to happen to me and it has happened to us. We notice a few things before we move on to his public ministry. Number one, every one, of here, every one of you here will be tempted with the following. You'll be tempted to question God's provision, God's timing, God's promises, God's care, and God's protection. Yes, you will. Some of you may have actually walked in here today, not telling anybody, but are tempted with those subjects. Two, because of that, you will be tempted now to shortcut God, to do it your way. Well, if it, no one else is going to do it right, so I got to do it myself. You know, I don't know what God's waiting for, but I'm going to, and even if you don't say it, it's what you're thinking. And you start to do it your own way. You start to compromise your values because you're testing his goodness. It's a problem. But today, you have the spiritual tools to overcome it. Jesus showed us the way. Take his tools right? Learn from him, he says. Mimic him and see if your life doesn't change in a substantial way. Two, God the Father was taking care of all the things besetting Jesus, but Satan was offering them all beforehand. Perhaps the biggest struggle that we have as believers in America is a God-timing issue. We want it, and we, that commercial makes me laugh. I want my money, and I want it now. And people are off the window screaming, I want my money. It's about lawsuits and settlements, and you, you can't wait for the money to come in. So you, you give this, this company like uh, eight cents or 80 cents on the dollar or 20 cents on the dollar, and they'll give you the money up front so you can have it now. 
And they make money off of off the whole, it's, it's a big business, right? Because I can't wait for my money. I can't wait in installments. I want it right now, right? God's timing. Like Jesus, whenever you stand up for the Lord and get involved, expect the trials to come. You know, did you, and, and honestly, does God get to see what you're made of? No. In his prescience, he already knows what you're made of. More specifically, I believe we get to see what we're made of. And sometimes it's jelly. <laughs> More specifically, cytoplasm. I've been quizzing my son on a science test, so it was just in my head. A lot of cytoplasm in there. Fourth point. Life is filled with... (laughs) High school chemistry, oh, biology. Life is filled with mountaintop experiences as well as valley and pit experiences. Now, some have said to me they have more pits than anybody else. But it's unrealistic to believe that we're going to be high on life all the time. That's why I don't like those preachers. Because if you spend a few years in that church, eventually you're going to be depressed. Because life is life, and it happens. And you're going to say, gee, I don't measure up to that preaching. You know, The other end of the spectrum is we're not called for life to be a drudgery. We're not called to be miserable. Some of us impose a life sentence on ourselves. No one else did it, but we did it. You, know, you don't have to live like that. And lastly, for those of you who are a bottom-line person, here's the bottom line. <laughs> Jesus taught us how to live. Many today aren't living. They're existing through life. Sadly to say, and I have to say wearing my other hat, narcotics are making a big comeback. Yeah, in this area, Middlesex County. Heroin is making a huge comeback. I see more young people strung out on heroin, and they're committing burglaries, and they're just so desperate. Okay? And the more respectable people in society are popping pills. You know, they just go to the doctor and the doctor writes them a bunch of scripts and then they go to another doctor and this is the pill-popping generation. In the 60s and 70s, it was Valium. Now it's hard stuff. Oxycodone, Oxycontin, they're crushing them up, snorting them, selling them on the street. It's a pretty sad world we live in. This is the dark side of our society. And, you, and what are you bringing this up for? <laughs> the why I'm bringing it up is because people don't know how to live. They haven't been taught how to live. They're looking to escape from life. When you're on that stuff, the house could be burning down and you just don't care. But eventually you come down from that high, you're back to the realities of life, and now you're behind you know, the block because you know, of all, that, all those uh, drugs that you did. I've shared this term, pharmakia, with uh, some that I know that have been addicted to drugs. And pharmakia was the word where we get the word uh, pharmacy in English. It's a Greek word, but it's used for sorcery in the scripture. That's weird. Why is it used that way? Because when you do drugs and you start getting yourself where your mind is not there, you're opening yourself up to demonic entities. Back in the days of the Bible, and there's no different today, drug use and sorcery and demonic uh, oppression went together. And in order to allow yourself to be calm and to allow the suggestion of another foreign being coming into you, the drugs would loosen you up and take out your inhibitions. It's no different today. Now, if you think that's weird, oh, this, this pastor talks about the devil. Do you really believe in that? Well, when people are on drugs, they steal from their loved ones. They ruin their credit. They manipulate them. And in some instances, they assault and kill their own parents. In the town that I work in, we're dealing with a trial like that just you know, right now, we're going through that in the court system. You still don't believe that there's demonic entities associated with that? 
Jesus taught us how to live in this world by living in a close relationship with the Father. See, he set the direction manual. When he made us and he gave us his word and all the things that were good, he told us how we could have long, productive, uh, healthy lives. But when we go against his direction manual, the Bible, that's when we get into all kinds of problems. And that's what a lot of this world is into, problems after even believers They don't know enough about the word. They're not trying to understand the word, and they don't know how to live. And when they come into my office for counseling, I just show them the way. I just bring them back to the word. And, and, you know, maybe it's it's, it's trying to, and, and again, from the pulpit, I try to make it relatable. I try to make it understandable. I add a little bit of humor in there. It's because we just need to know how to live, and the only way we can know how to live is through God's word. Amen. Right? Jesus said, I want you to have life and that life more abundantly. He didn't say, I want you to be on this earth and I'm going to make things miserable for you. But don't worry, when you die, everything's going to be better. That's not what he said. You know, out of all the Jesus movies I saw when I was a new believer, I probably saw every one of them. There was one guy, and I can't remember his name, but he played a happy Jesus. You know, everywhere Jesus went, he had a smile and... You know, he hugged people when he healed them, and he, he, when, when, he, when they were crippled, and he'd help them up, and he'd, like, be at joy. That's the way I picture Jesus. Some picture Jesus as just ornery and miserable, and mm, I'm down here with you people, and, you know. <laughs> God showed us how to have joy, how to be optimistic, how to live in the Spirit, and how to weather tough times. Verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, quote, he quotes Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness saw a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus' public ministry is kicked off, and of course, he's fulfilling yet another Old Testament prophecy. Now, Naphtali and Zebulun were two tribes of Israel that settled west of the Sea of Galilee, um, would have encompassed Galilee before there was a Galilee. That's the beauty of prophecy. It tells you things and stuff that are going to happen and your time period, and you just have no idea until thousands of years pass, and then it comes true, and you're like, wow, that's pretty impressive. The context of Isaiah's time was that there was an awful spiritual condition in Israel, and they were being conquered by a pagan force. Here, the way this is, is fulfilled, this prophecy, is a prophecy of hope, that the Messiah would come, that he would uh, scatter the spiritual darkness and bring transformation. And, of course, he speaks about Gentiles. Back then, they were mostly Jews, but because of a lot of the mixing between the Jews and the Gentiles, by the time of Jesus' day, there was a large amount of Gentiles in that area. So another amazing prophecy uh, that was fulfilled. And just a little on the geography, uh, Galilee, we would understand as today is sort of like our counties, Middlesex, Hunterdon, you know, Mercer, and Nazareth would have been a town inside Galilee. Capernaum was also part of Galilee, but it sat on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee with the mountains as a backdrop, and we'll see that when we go into the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 17, it says that Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Wait a minute. Didn't we just hear that about John the Baptist? Isn't Jesus supposed to be all, you know, warm and fuzzy? when He's preaching repentance. 
Well, repentance is important, and we, and we can't miss that. Much of the world has a, a bizarre picture of Jesus that's not accurate. He wasn't uh, a flower. He wasn't soft and effeminate. He was, he was the son of God. Now, here's the other extreme. Every so often, people try to reinvent Jesus. The other extreme that I see now is that Jesus is, uh, you know, a bodybuilder, and he's into the MMA, mixed martial arts, and if anybody gets on his nerves, he'll give him a beatdown. Hey, Herod, are you talking to me? Come over here and say that. No. Be careful of those that try to reinvent Jesus. Jesus was the Son of God. He was perfect in every way possible. Verse 18, the last few verses. Oh, no, um, a few more then. 18. Now, Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Then they immediately left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Did you ever wonder why so many left what they were doing, just dropped it? We're going to find about Matthew. Matthew was making a fortune in the tax office. And, you know, he calls Matthew, and Matthew just leaves his booth and goes to follow Jesus. It sounds surreal if you don't understand the time period. See, even the Jews that weren't living as the Jews, they were taught in school about the Old Testament. They knew their scripture. They knew that there were certain prophecies that were coming to pass in their time period that the Messiah was coming. The trick was now to figure out who it was. However, Jesus, he did miracles. He, he helped them with their catch of fish. And he was the son of, he is the son of God. So when Jesus walked by, I believe that uh, even today, if he blended in with one of us, we would immediately know who he was. He wasn't like any mere man. So they were doing what they were doing. They were confronted with Jesus, with the Son of God, dropped everything, and followed him. Where is your desire to follow him? What do you have to do today after church? How many of you are hoping that I'm almost done because you got something to do today? There's a lot of smiles. <laughs> Where is your de desire to follow him? And what's holding you back? Now, I'm not suggesting if you're a fisherman or you have a business to just drop what you're doing right now and, you know, run around and be a missionary. I'm not suggesting that. Neither is the Bible. But are you following him? Are you following him in your heart? These guys left a lucrative profession because they trusted God. They were obedient. Some today follow Christ in a drop of a hat. They immediately, they hear the word. They're moved by the word. They're regenerative, they're regenerated, they come up, they receive Jesus, and they immediately, how can I get more of this? Can, can, I, can I borrow a church Bible? Can I, can I go to another Bible study? And some take years. They dawdle, they dilly-dally. Today's the day of salvation, folks. And you don't know what the next day is going to bring. Don't be caught facing the Lord as a career or a consumer or a cultural Christian and facing the Lord, and basically we wasted our gifts doing nothing. Following pursuits that never manifested anyway, having our own ideas, and, and listen, that was me before Christ, you know, constantly thinking, okay, this is going to work, and, you know, it just was me. I just wasn't happy. I wasn't fulfilled. Christ is the only thing. Not only does he save us from our sins and from hell, 
but he brings us life and that life more abundantly. Where are you today? Pray about being a fisher of men or a fisher of women. I will tell you this from personal experience. I've actually lived more of my years as a non-believer, and of course, as the years continue, I'm almost caught up with those years as a non-believer, as a believer. And I will tell you that from experience, it's the most rewarding, it's the most purposeful, and most invigorating thing you will ever do, having a purpose that transcends your being. See, when we live for ourselves, we can have the houses and the boats and the cars and the nice clothes and the wardrobe and the degrees and, and all that stuff, not bad. But all it does is help us. When we become fishers of men and women, we do something that, that will affect thousands, possibly millions of people on the, on the globe. And that's just so much bigger than just me. So I'm uh, just telling you, take it from experience. And you can see the excitement in the disciples and, and the excitement just dropping what they do. They weren't like, oh... We've got to follow Jesus now. Hey, Dad, can you, can you get some help with the fishing industry here? It wasn't like that, you know? When we go through the miracles and we go through the questions and the disciples talking to each other, they're like little kids again. They're excited about what Jesus is doing. Are you excited about what Jesus is doing? Are you excited about going through the book of Matthew? Verse 23. Now, Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame, or the report of him, went throughout all Syria. They brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments. And those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, and paralytics, he healed them. And great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Again, a little bit more in the geography. In my mind, I've looked at the map so much, I can kind of picture where everything is. But uh, you have your Jerusalem is obviously south. You have your Decapolis, which is more southeast. You have your beyond the Jordan, Perea, which is east-east, Syria, which is the northwest. Um, so basically, all these areas are, where, wherever Jesus was, it was like the bullseye. And it was concentric circles that went out and affected. You just imagine, you, you hear about this prophet, you know, you send your brother who's... Uh, can't walk, and you carry him all the way over there, he gets healed, you bring him back home, and everybody says, wow, what happened to you? So you can just imagine quickly with these, you know, some were insane, some were demon-possessed, um, and, and all of a sudden they're well-dressed and they have a job, you know what I'm saying? So I mean, let's just put it in our terms. So you can see how the report of him went out all over the region. And the cool thing about Jesus is I, I, I got hung up on that word fame, and an alternate translation says the report of him, but Fame. Sometimes ministers get too caught up in the whole fame aspect of gospel preaching, and they forget it's about people. That's what it's all about. It's about people. We may not be a huge church, but we're, we're affecting others in other continents, through missionaries, through uh, cultural things, through inner cities, through the homeless. It's really exciting. So we can stay this size for the next 10 years, and it wouldn't matter. The cool thing is that we're having an impact on those all around the globe, and that's exciting. It doesn't have to be about big numbers or multimedia experiences or any of that stuff. That's a trap in ministry. So there you have it. Jesus was tempted. He was tested. He went out, and he started his public ministry. So excited to get to the meat and potatoes of, of how we're going to jump into this gospel. Really excited about it. Sermon on the Mount, next chapter. Can't wait. My prayer is that we get a new understanding on how to deal with our temptations. Let's go back to the beginning. 
our trials and the things that we go to, and that we go to God's word, we go to Christ when we struggle. He's available. I could just picture him saying, all you have to do is ask. I knock at the door. You know, he's standing at a church. I knock at the door. Somebody's got to open the door and let him in, right? And that as Christ is, we too can be overcomers with his help. Let's pray.